Okay, this is Live from the Table, the official podcast of New York's world famous Comedy Cellar. Coming at you on Sirius XM 99 Raw Dog and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network. Dan Natterman here with Noam Dorman, the owner of the world famous Comedy Cellar Comedy Club. Periel Ashenbrand, our producer, with us today. Alingon Mitra. Alingon, it's been a long time. He is a stand-up comic, a Comedy Cellar regular. Uh, he has been a writer on Adam Ruins Everything and The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. has made appearances on Comedy Central and Conan O'Brien, Stephen Colbert, etc. Hello, Alingon. We also have with us another guest all the way from the United Kingdom, Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at Burbeck College, University of London, and is the author of White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities, and it's probably as controversial as it sounds. He has also <laughs> written for the New York Times, Times of London, Newsweek, National Review, New Statesman, and other outlets. Eric Kaufman, welcome. Thanks for joining us. It's late over there where you are in London. We appreciate you staying up for us. Great. Well, thanks for having me. And I, I do apologize for not having a British accent since I'm Canadian, but that's okay. I've lived here for over 20, 25 years. The English accent is contagious, but apparently you are resistant to it. I recall Madonna living there for like a month and all the talking, like, you know, he's talking like the queen after just a couple of months. But, but you resisted. Yeah, I think the, the, the Northern Irish and Scottish ones are easier to acquire, but... Uh... Well, um, I guess everybody at their own pace. Noam, this is a guest that you, you were turned on to by our, our friend Coleman Hughes, who recommended him as a guest. Eric, you know Coleman, right? I do indeed, yes. I've had uh, some, some nice uh, lunches with him in New York. Um, so yeah, he's great. I love his work. So, Eric and and Alingan, you know, can, can you give us a, a, a quick overview of um, you have you have some thoughts about why America is coming apart and how it relates to uh, immigration and how it um, is a hostage to human nature and uh, where it it might go? You want to give us a little overview, and then um, you know, Alingan can can tear you apart. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm a sort of. I'm a political scientist. I work a lot with survey data uh, on public opinion. And one of the things you see uh, in the U.S. case certainly is that uh, views on immigration were absolutely critical for predicting uh, who would support Trump in, in the Republican primary, as opposed to Cruz or, or uh, Kasich or others. And then also in terms of um, Obama voters and non-voters switching over to the Republicans in 2016, that issue uh, of views on immigration was absolutely crucial. Um, and, and in Europe, we have, you know, if you look at the Brexit vote, you look at the vote for um, the Sweden Democrats, Marine Le Pen, et cetera. Again, immigration is absolutely the key issue for uh, the rise of the populist right. And I think Trump's reflecting that same dynamic and that, that if you look at American public opinion, just white Americans, Democrats and Republicans were only about 10 points apart on uh, views on immigration in 2012. And by 2016, they're 50 points apart. And that pattern we've seen in other countries to a greater or lesser degree. So I think that issue is really key uh, for understanding why we're in the moment we're in. And, what, and why are we in the moment that we're in? Well, we're in a actually quite substantial period of ethno-demographic shifting across the West. And depending on how people are wired, and, and this is 50% heritable, you either see that as, as stimulating and interesting, or you see it as 
loss and as disorder. And it's the people who see it as loss and as disorder who are moving into voting populist right now. Uh, and that issue is going to be with us um, really for the rest of our lives. I would argue that's going to be a major factor. And so whenever what's happened now is there, there was a big increase in immigration, say, in Britain and, and in Europe in, in, since about 2014. And that's been reflected in the rise in the number of people saying immigration is one of the most important issues facing my country. And when that rises, the support for the populist right rises. And it's been found in nine out of 10 Western countries in the last, just in a recent paper. So there's a very important link then between this kind of ethnic change, which unsettles people's idea of, of the country they live in, uh, of their own identities, but it only unsettles a part of the population who are for psychological reasons, um, mainly not that, you know, they tend to see differences, disorder, changes, loss. So the big question is how we're going to deal with that part of the population in Western countries. So I, I have a series of questions and then um, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to dominate, but, but one of the things, that, uh, one of the things I, I always find myself thinking as kind of like a, uh, a first principles of all this. And I'm not clear on the answers as, is what feelings are we prepared to say are wholesome and acceptable? And what feelings were you prepared to say are bigotry and racism? So for instance, when um, black people complain that Harlem is becoming gentrified and all of a sudden they find themselves living in a, in a white neighborhood, we kind of say, yeah, I don't blame them for being pissed off, right? I say, if, if I was moving here to, to America from Russia and I decided to move to a Russian neighborhood, Nobody would say, boo, of course, you. I understand you want to move to a Russian neighborhood. But then all of a sudden, if my Russian neighborhood started turning Italian and I, and I didn't want that, you said, what are you, a bigot? I say, well, it was OK when I moved to the Russian neighborhood. Now it's not OK that I want to keep it Russian neighborhood. And I, and I think that we I don't want to keep on, but I think that we haven't really grappled with what sense of wanting to be around people like yourselves. Do we think is OK? And where does it cross the line into being evil? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got your finger on, on the key ethical or normative question because, you know, in surveys, it's really... I usually do, by the way, but go ahead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because actually psychologists, they find, you know, that attachment to your in-group and dislike of the out-group are separate dispositions. In most cases, unless there's a direct clash, like being a Republican and a Democrat, yeah, the warmer you feel towards the Democrats, the cooler you feel towards the Republicans... But that's a zero-sum competition. It doesn't work that way for, say, feeling warmer. If you're white and you feel warmer towards white people, you don't feel cooler towards black people. It's unrelated. And so that's part of this issue. It's like saying, I'm, if I'm really attached to my family, do I hate the neighbor's family more? No, actually, there's no relationship there. Um, and so one of the questions is, you know, is it okay for an ethnic group or, or even a, a pan-ethnic racial group like white Americans or Hispanic Americans to feel an attachment to their group and perhaps to want to slow down change to a neighborhood or country, et cetera. I think it's different when we're talking about stopping change entirely and, and sealing the borders. And, you know, that is clearly an exclusive orientation. But if you, if you talk about what's the rate of change, you know, it tends to be that if you say, I want slower change, you're put into the closed box and there's the open people and the closed people. It's kind of very black and white. And what I'm sort of saying is we've got to move to a place where there's faster and slower, not just open, closed. And you've got to be tolerant that 
some people who want things to be a bit slower and you have to be able to find an accommodation point. Why are you drawing a line between slow change and no change? Slow change, you seem to, see, you seem to be saying, is okay to want slow change, but when we but, get into no change at all, you say that's not okay. Why, why that distinction? Well, no change would be sort of associated with a, with a sort of irrational fear of foreigners and a desire for purity and essentialism, you know. So that is sort of, that's where it comes into racism or some kind of xenophobia. Whereas if we're just talking about slower change because of attachment to the way things are, um, not freezing it in, in stone, but sort of an attachment and, and where you're willing to tolerate differences uh, but you, you want to be able to govern the pace of increase in that diversity. I think that is a conversation we have to be able to have. I don't think we are able to have it now in many circles where you are immediately tagged as a, a kind of bigot if you aren't one of, in the open group that more or less doesn't believe in. So hold, hold, hold that uh, free speech uh, issue for a second. Yeah. That is one of the things I want to get to. But Alingan, uh, you being uh, the only... Um, well, yeah, it used to be that Jews were fitness description, but I guess we've been declassified. So being the only, be the only brown person and non-white person, uh, just is, what, what are you thinking while you're hearing him say this stuff? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple things that I have questions about. I, I, one of the things was the idea of being wired uh, to want this or not want this, that I guess I'd have to find out what this data is because it seems like something that you wouldn't be wired to be something that you would learn. And if it's learnable, then it's something you could change. Um, and then the other thing is when you're talking about being, if you're against it entirely, that's irrational. But if it's slow, that is rational. I still feel like I'm not sure how one part of it is becomes rational if you're just like, okay, well, I'm okay with it, but you got to go slow versus I'm not okay with it at all. Why is that one now a rational uh, choice? Okay, Eric? Yeah, I mean, really good questions. I mean, I, I think that the, the wiring, okay, so this is, there's a literature in psychology on something called right-wing authoritarianism. Um, this is a disposition, again, as I mentioned, that sees um, differences disorder in a way. Um, and they, they've done twin studies that can show you that that essentially in, in twins that are separated or, or, or half related. Uh, you can see this How relationship. Many, they always do these twin studies where they're separated. How many are there in the world? Where they're <laughs> the <laughs> significant numbers, significant numbers. We had, we had um, Nancy Siegel. We had Nancy Siegel from NYU. She did, was involved in the Minnesota twin studies. There, there's quite a significant number of them. Uh, go ahead. Well, they, yeah, might use even, twins. they might use the same twins for every study, you know, just like they use the same community <laughs> for every TV show. Go ahead, Eric, go ahead. But you can even see, for example, people's view, you know, how messy is your desk? Um, do you believe in a dress code for a tennis tournament? Things which you wouldn't think of as being related uh, actually are very much related to something like, do you want more immigration or less immigration? Things you wouldn't believe are actually, so this is tapping into those underlying uh, dimensions of psychology, which are, are sort of very stable dispositions. So this is not something actually that you can teach out of people. And, and this is a point that Karen Stenner, the psychologist in her book, The Authoritarian Dynamic, which Jonathan Haidt talks about quite a bit. And Jonathan Haidt himself, I mean, preferences for messy dots on a screen versus orderly dots on a screen. And that's very at a very basic level of disposition. And these things matter because you then start to select environments that um, tend to reinforce those dispositions. And so you get people sort of 
becoming quite different. So I, I would sort of say that I don't think this sort of view that this can be educated out of people is likely to work. And in fact, what Stenner says is if you try and do that, you actually can make things worse. Uh, people react. There have been some experiments that can show that people actually have a reactive effect to that kind of messaging. Um, and actually, there are ways you can message to try and get. So, so, for example, if we're talking about immigration, if you tell people that, well, immigrants are coming in, but things aren't changing very much, your country's not really, they're just being absorbed as they have in the past. Actually, that works very well with this kind of segment of the population. Whereas if you say, we're getting more and more diverse, things are changing, ain't that great, that goes down really badly. So, well, it's part, yeah, go also, ahead. I, I would say, Lingon, and, and Eric, you correct me if, if I'm out to lunch here, but in general, humans get used to things in a particular pattern, whether it's really spicy food or, I mean, I mean, it seems weird to say, but like there was a time when Beethoven's music, they, they couldn't be comprehended by people who listened to it. If you woke up tomorrow and found that the entire world was now Hasidic Jews, that, that would be quite disconcerting to you in terms, of, in terms of everything that would have to change. But if gradually over 20 years, more and more Hasidic Jews moved into your life, obviously that would be quite a different outcome that you, you, you would get used to it. So at some point, and cultures are quite different, let's not kid ourselves. And um, I chose Hasid because they're both the, the most, uh, kind of the most out there. And also because I'm Jewish, I can kind of get away with bashing them without being called anti-Semitic. But they make a nice example because I wouldn't want to wake up in a Hasidic neighborhood. And I know a Lingon wouldn't. And they, by the way, they wouldn't want me. And, 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 but you know, if it happened gradually, you would imagine that not only would I get used to it, but also they would also change a little bit as they gradually were introduced and they would start to adapt other things. And this actually brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about is that assuming this is going to happen, aren't we emphasizing the opposite of everything we would put on the drawing board for like, okay, if we're going to make this multi-ethnic nation work, we're going to have to just get rid of this notion that cultural appropriation is a bad idea. And we're going to have to get rid of this idea that the most important thing about it is your ethnicity. And we're going to have to go a little, you know, have a thicker skin about people talking about stuff because it, we, we are emphasizing everything that would make it almost impossible to live together. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, I think a, some kind of notion of assimilation uh, and again, that gets to this idea of sort of celebrating the uh, inclusion and, and, and the idea that things aren't changing so fast. You know, you want to actually almost suggest that actually things aren't changing fast. Immigrants are coming in, being absorbed into an existing matrix, even if it's not actually happening quite that quickly. That's the message you probably want to emphasize, not to say we're getting more and more diverse and changing. And isn't that fantastic? I mean, that works with a small number of people. Uh, but it's not going to work with, with another part of the population. And this is partly what's behind the polarizing uh, politics. I mean, if you look across the West, increasingly um, parties are looking more and more similar on class, and they're more, looking more and more different in terms of culture, uh, in terms of cultural attitudes. And, and that's because of this psychological divide between the people who like difference and change and those who don't. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. We're kind of going about it the wrong way in many Western countries by emphasizing that difference all the time. What, what are the, 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 the tangible differences if uh, in a society, in a Western society that becomes less uh, white? Uh, what, what is actually changing that one might 
react to other than fear of change and we can understand fear of change i suppose but w w what's actually changing or what will change in a, in a society that's 50 percent brown say 50 percent east indian hispanic and black how will we be a different country if at all yeah i mean part of this also i haven't talked as much about the second part of the book which is about melting into that you know if the ethnic majority expands its boundaries like in the u.s it went from protestant to white, you know, so Jews and Catholics became part of this sort of majority category. But, you know, going forward, you know, Michael Lynn talks about Beijing, so you'll get sort of people who've intermarried into this category becoming part of it. So you might actually get a multicolored majority melting pot emerging, right? So that's, that, but that's not going to happen in, in a serious way until the second part of the century. The question is what we do now before that has occurred. Um, yeah, I think when you have ethnic difference, which is people who have different collective memories, different myths of ancestry in terms of which communities they belong to, and possibly different culture, you're going to get these different identities. And, and it's well known, there's a study of this globally that shows that where you have uh, more ethnic differences within a country, there are some things that are harder, like where do you build the hospital, Who's, whose district you put it in. You know, so there are these collective action problems that are thrown up by rising diversity. And, you know, in the U.S. case, you had rising diversity in the early part of the 20th century. Robert Putnam has a book on this. And then you actually had a decline in diversity as you had assimilation. Um, and, and actually, you had arguably a higher social solidarity. But now we're back to where things were in the early 20th century. So the question is some kind of integration, not assim not government assimilation, but these things happen organically, privately. Um, that probably needs to happen before some of these tensions start to reduce. Also, we, we have other problems in this country uh, that, and so I'm, I'm a child of immigrants, and um, there was a particular immigrant mentality that I grew up with that is quite different, I would say, than the immigrant mentality of uh, immigrants that I know, like who work for me. People I love, by the way. I'm not, this is not, um, I hope it, it's hard to express it without somebody thinking I'm criticizing. It just is what it is. So my father came here at a time when, um, first of all, going from country to country was a tremendous thing, right? And it was no long distance. There was barely any mail. Or, so when, when you when you went somewhere else, that was it. And coming from Russia or Israel and winding up in America, you kissed the ground and you wrapped yourself in the flag and you would never utter a word. America was the savior and you appreciated every minute of it. You didn't care that they sang Christmas carols. You didn't care that there was a national Christmas tree. You, you, you didn't, you know, you, you. but now we have um, populations coming here who, who've grown up on anti-American diet with anti-American mentalities who are also coming from uh, in, in ways that they have no particular um, obstacles to going right back or going back and forth or calling home all the time. So the, the, in many ways, it doesn't feel like they would naturally um, root to this country in the same way because, and I speak to immigrants who work for me, they're like, are you going to stay here? I don't know. I might, I might go back. I might go back for a little while. You know, uh, would you, would you, um, want your kids to fight in a, you know, a war here? Oh no, I'd, I'd be out of here. You know, if there was the war, you know, and I don't blame them for any of these things, but it's just quite, it's just quite different. And then, and then finally, we've also 
decided that it's no longer appropriate for us to demand of the immigrant uh, the intention to assimilate. And I don't know how you feel about that or anybody in the panel feels about that. But again, I'm just saying that's the truth. We used to think it was very appropriate to tell an immigrant from a foreign country, well, you better learn to speak English and get your shit together. And, and remember that George Washington is, is, uh, is you know, your, your, your founding father. And now we don't, we, we think it's almost bigotry to, to expect the immigrant to wrap themselves in our culture, in our traditions. All of this seems like a, a recipe for a lot of difficulties, really all I'm saying. My... Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't think the immigrants coming now are, are, are less necessarily that much different in terms of their willingness to, to assimilate. But I do think the dominant narrative um, coming from the elite is, is quite different. It's, it's sort of encouraging difference rather than uh, assimilation into a, a common entity. And so, so, yeah, I think that really is having a negative effect. I mean, I think what, what's interesting is, is you have this combination of the ethnic diversification. Layered on top of that, you have this ideology, which is very pro-diversity. And that, that sort of begins, it's got a long intellectual history, begins kind of in the early 20th century in America, but it really takes off post-1960s, gets into the institutions, the education system, and now is into high politics. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's really going to be a very challenging recipe when you aren't even, you don't even have a matrix into which you're trying to get the majority. Now, of course, people are allowed to, it's a free country, they can, if they don't want to assimilate, that's fine, there's no problem there, but you probably need a critical mass to be voluntarily doing that if you want to have a reasonable level of social solidarity. Um, but, but the other thing I, I point out, though, is I think the origin of the polarization is within the white population more than anything else. It is a kind of intra-white battle between kind of the, what I call left modernism, which is a sort of cultural left, and then the more traditional patriotic kind of, whereas, whereas I'm not sure that the immigrant, you know, the immigrant groups and non-white groups are sort of not on the sidelines, but they're not as implicated in this polarizing tendency that's really gripped in the last few decades. Oh, it's definitely the white view. What do you say, Olingan? I don't know. It seems, it, it's dicey because I feel like you, you, once you start pushing that a little bit where you're like, look, we got to figure out a matrix to assimilate in, then you get to a point where people are saying, oh, you're not American because you aren't playing baseball or you aren't speaking English. And that's where it gets, I don't know, it starts getting a little prejudicial. Even if the person's an American citizen, you're like, well, you're not doing American things because you're not eating our food, so you're less of us now, which I don't, I think it, that, it, I, it, there's a nuance there, but I feel like people aren't going to catch that nuance. They're just going to grab it for what, what they want, which is, I want my country to be the way it is. You're not doing it the way I want it, so you're not us. Well, you're right, Olinga, and, and it is dicey, and, and it is, and well, this is where, we, where, where I started off asking, Eric, it, it's, we are trying to bring out the best parts of our human nature and find a way to, to control and contain the worst parts of our nature. And these issues activate both these things and in the same people at, at various times, you know? And, um, and I think that's why, in the end, why this idea of moving slowly is, is wise. Like, you know, the typical, typical recipe is uh, add ingredients and then stir. And then, you know, and, and we, 
we, we need to stir. There is this more, um, less easy to, less easy to justify in moral terms, but it's real. And I, I, I'm, you know, you're afraid to bring things up in this day and age, but I just want to say there was, for people who are older, there was a time when um, there was a, a wave of immigrants, illegal immigrants, this was when Reagan was president. Reagan uh, um, gave amnesty to all the illegal legal immigrants at the time. And then people were promised, and now we're going to take this problem seriously, and this is not going to happen again. And a lot of these voters woke up 20, 30 years later and found that, wait a second, everything has drastically changed now. It's, it's five times worse than it was when they promised us it wouldn't happen worse from their point of view, uh, that when they promised us that this would be under control. And now I'm being asked to change my expectations of how I should live. And they resent it. And, um, you know, whether it's wrong or it's right, it's perfectly predictable, right? It's it's perfectly predictable that a human being, we're all the same, black, white, or, or any color, would resent that. And we have to deal with that resentment in some way better than just saying, you're an asshole, shut up and take it, you know? <laughs> Which, <laughs> Eric, what do you say? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is an issue here around um, intolerance of people who, who want to assimilate, for example. That is, you know, it's certainly in academia where I am, the idea that you would look positively on somebody who wants to assimilate doesn't really exist. It's just not in the high culture. Whereas someone who wants to retain their identity and traditions from another country, that's seen as fantastic. My view is retain if you want to retain That's I don't think we should look down on that. I don't think the state should be forcing people to assimilate. But what I have a problem with is the sort of reverse that, that someone who wants to voluntarily assimilate is, is kind of frowned upon. And, and so it's that. And similarly, when I think well, explain that. About, I'm not sure what you're referring to. When, who's frowned upon for wanting to assimilate? Well, the idea of seeing assimilation as a positive thing, for example, it's kind of, I won't say it's a swear word in, in, in academia, but it, it is certainly close to that. No one is talking positively about assimilation. Voluntary, I'm saying. Um, but the other thing, too, is that this idea of exclusion, right? So if I say, let's take a phrase like, all accents are American accents, right? If you think about that, it's true. Anybody can be an American citizen and ha- have any accent. So on one, one level, absolutely all accents are American accents. But on another level, that's a nonsensical phrase. Clearly, there are British accents and French accents and American accents. And that distinction of that part of what makes the U.S. distinctive are these everyday particularities like the way people speak English. Uh, that doesn't mean everyone must speak that way to be considered an equal American. We have to be able to kind of juggle both things at once. We want to ret- retain traditions, but at the same time be open-minded enough to allow for difference. I think that balance is being lost. It's now all on the different side. If you mention any of this traditional stuff, then you are seen as anti the difference. No, you can actually be okay with tolerating difference and accepting somebody as equal, but at the same time, want to conserve and preserve certain traditions with make, which make your country distinctive, such as the American accent. Let's say that uh, people didn't assimilate. There was a lot of immigration. There was no assimilation. How would that affect somebody who chose to live within the, how would that negatively affect 
somebody that's an American of has been here for several generations? Why would they care if there's a neighborhood in which people don't speak English very well and have a weird accent? Which, and, and there are such neighborhoods, by the way. Right. You know, and how, that doesn't affect me directly. How would that, on a macro level, affect people, you know, uh, well, it all gets, population. Yeah, well, it all gets back to that sort of distinction between people who like difference and change and those who, who dislike them. They're actually separate dispositions. The change part and the difference part are separate. They're not exactly the same. But so for somebody um, who tends to prefer order, for example, a more homogenous environment, they would tend to see that, experience it negatively. Someone else might see it as stimulating and interesting. Both exist, and we have to deal with both. But is it possible for some people to live in homogeneous environments? I could certainly move to parts of the United States that are very homogeneous and, and let New York be New York and let Idaho, which I assume is mostly, I don't know this for sure, but I assume is mostly European uh, ancestry people, right. let them be them. And we can live in separate, we can live where we want to live. I mean, at what point does, does the, the, the changing culture be, or the, you know, affect the people in Idaho? or affect the people in Montana? And well, it, right. so it affects it insofar as they may not feel in as much of an identity with the diverse places. So they may see them those diverse places as fundamentally different, having fundamentally different interests, and therefore it's harder to have a national, common national identity. Now, I actually think there has to become a, a tolerance on both sides. So there has to be an acceptance that there are cosmopolitan places, there are homogenous places. Neither one of them is sinful because it's diverse or cosmopolitan on the one hand or homogeneously white on the other. It doesn't make it a better or worse place. So I think that tolerance has to happen. But we do know, for example, that, you know, worldwide, it is just more difficult to, to achieve in terms of, say, economic development, you know, more what's called ethnically fractionalized diverse societies tend to have slower economic development, not mainly because public goods such as uh, government welfare and, and uh, garbage collection and hospital provision and policing and all these sorts of things are just more difficult when you have these differences. So, and politics tends to run more on ethnic lines. Parties tend to be dominated more by single ethnic groups rather than by, say, liberal and conservative. So there are a whole bunch of reasons why it's just more challenging, but it's, it's incorrect to say such societies are all going to collapse into chaos. No, they're not. I mean, there's a lot of successful very polyethnic societies like Mauritius, for example, in Switzerland. Uh, so it's not, but, but on the other hand, it's just harder. Uh, and it's maybe, in my view, probably better to have kind of this melting pot assimilating majority, which is not the whole country, and then minorities who maintain their culture, and that's fine. Um, but I think if that melting pot kind of majority shrinks and becomes a smaller share and you've got multiple poles, it's just, it's just harder. Politics is more likely to take on an ethnic form. What about this thought? Suppose the those who are against immigration because they believe that immigrants will change the culture and won't assimilate, suppose they're dead wrong and they're probably at least half wrong, okay? But suppose they're 100% wrong. Do they still have the right, if, if they, do they, are they worthy of condemnation? Have they, do they have the right to be wrong and guide policy? In other words, if a majority of my fellow Americans don't want immigration, whatever the reason, they're a majority. And I feel like I have to be like, okay, if you don't want immigration, that's your choice to make. I might disagree with it, but 
I, I, I'm not going to say you're evil and that we're going to overrule your decision. I mean, I don't know if you, you know where I'm getting, um, what, well, what I'm saying is like, to what extent do, does, does a country have a right to say for any reason they choose that they're going to reduce immigration? Well, you know, I mean, I, like I have a right not to invite a ling on to my dinner party because I just don't like <laughs> a ling on and I don't even have I've a good reason. I've never been invited to a dinner party. Before. I don't have dinner parties. My apartment's too small and, and, and it's not very nice. But the point <laughs> is, is, whatever the reason that, 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 the major, that a majority of our population wants to reduce immigration, that's, is, that, is that their choice? Or should we fight that choice and say, no, you try to force them to think uh, in another way? Well, I, I think you can when you say force, I think you could certainly make an argument and say, well, look, do we not owe a debt to people in other parts of the world? By all means, try and convince. But in a democracy, I do think that you, the problem has been that there's been an attempt to take this issue off the table by associating it, anyone who wants less, with being a bigot. And what that does is essentially shutting down, narrowing the acceptable space of debate. What you're doing, it's a bit like the Soviet Union, I explained, you kind of, you're only gonna sell one color of pair of pants. And so if someone wants blue jeans or something different, where are they gonna go? They can't go to the main political parties because they're not selling that. And so they're gonna go to a black marketeer, which it might be a Trump, it might be a Le Pen, somebody who is willing to break the taboo and offer people what they're not getting from the mainstream parties. Now you don't, obviously you don't always wanna offer what people aren't getting from the mainstream parties. George Wallace offered segregation. You have to draw lines, but the question is, you have to have a good reason for drawing the lines. And I don't think tarring anybody who wants less immigration with the racism brush was a justifiable, legitimate reason. And so all you did is you created a Trump by not allowing mainstream parties to address it responsibly. Um, and, and so there are dangers in trying to shut these things, these conversations down. But are are they racist though? Like if I'm, if I want my country to be white because I'm, I'm white and I'm like, okay, I'm okay with somebody from Russia coming, but I'm not okay with somebody from China coming. Whereas the guy from China may have more similarities to me than the guy from Russia. It's just a, how he looks is the way I look. I'm okay with that. Is that not racist? Like, is that not something we should be saying is a racist policy? Well, I think if you're trying to, to keep your, maintain some kind of a racially homogenous ethnostate, then that is racism because um, you have this pure, this notion of purity and essentialism, which is irrational and dangerous. And then where does that stop? You're going to start purifying in, in what way, right? So th there, there is definitely a, you know, we, we want to clearly condemn that. But, but when I'm talking, what I'm talking about is slowing down the rate of change. It's, it's, a, it's a, a view that says we're going to have immigration and, and we're going to have intermarriage and interracial marriage and mixing. So clearly that's not the same thing as saying we want to have some kind of pure race thing. Uh, but people tend to collapse both those positions into one. That is, you don't want change. You're, you're not open. You're a bigot. And you're the same as Richard Spencer. Well, we have to be able to, have to be more nuanced than that. We have to be able to say... Yeah, there's some people who want slower change, some want faster. We're going to have to meet in the middle. We can't be so absolute and reactive to the people who want slower change. And, and also, can, can I say something here? Because it's it's really it's really complicated and it's it's <laughs> it's depressing actually. Because 
I mean, as, as Alingon says that, you know, I would say, yeah, that does sound like racism to me. At the same time, mm -hmm. my first thought was, but you know, the people who are supposedly pro-immigrant and calling people who are not racist, if you listen to stuff they talk about, they seem even more racist to me. All I ever hear from that side of the, of the, of the ideological spectrum is, uh, is anti, is bashing whiteness, bashing white males, uh, um, all sorts of identity, identity politics. I mean, strongly, strongly identifying everything in the world on the basis of race. And then if God forbid a white person, like we're creating, I mean, people should understand, I have no affinity towards white people. It's only like a few years ago that, I mean, people forgot the fact that the people, the, the white nationalists hate Jews first, you know, now they're kind of lumping in, but I'm just saying I, I have no affinity for them whatsoever. But I feel like if we keep telling them that we view them as white, at some point they're going to say, that's right. We're, we're, you're, why are you getting mad at us for saying about ourselves the very same thing you've been telling us every day that we are? So it's almost like we're creating a white race. We're normalizing every day, even in a subtle thing like calling people Karens and everything like this. We are normalizing all the concepts that we should be trying to root out and destroy if we're going to be a melting, a melting pot society, multi-ethnic society. Go ahead. And well, I have something else to add after that. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I think, I think we need to also distinguish between a kind of normal, you know, sense of ethnic identity, um, you know, or even racial identity. You can be Puerto Rican and Hispanic. You can be Irish and white. White is kind of the higher level. And in fact, in the research, what we find is people are strongest, strongest attachment is to their ethnic ancestral identity. But if you are strongly attached to being Irish, you are much more strongly attached to being white. Or if you're much more attached to being Cuban, you're more attached to being Hispanic. The one is kind of just an, an outer layer. And, but the difference is, do you sort of, in expressing your Hispanicness or your whiteness, uh, are you doing that in opposition to somebody else? Like I'm superior or I hate this other person, or is it simply, no, I'm proud of the traditions that we hold, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's what Jonathan Haidt calls a common humanity version of identity as opposed to a common enemy version of identity. And what's going on now, I think with the cultural left is they are encouraging minority groups to have a common enemy version of their identity as in, instead of a common humanity version of their identity. The minority groups don't want that pushed on them. They're actually quite content with being proud of their traditions and they don't want this to be part of this people of color coalition that's gonna somehow overthrow some power structure. And, and so what we're seeing is this is driven mainly by a kind of white cultural left rather than... Oh, we got some freezing going on. I, I think big tech, big tech had enough of our coffin the at, the, at the end of the The Atlantic cable's getting uh, too much salt in it. No, I, that's, that's a very good point you, you, you just made. It's true. A lot of this is driven more by the, the, the far, far left white people than it is by the, the non-white people themselves. I, I, that's been my experience too. It, the, the classic case is this Latinx thing where uh, right. only 1% or 1.5% of all the Latin people wanted to be called Latinx. And yet every liberal white person is on Twitter will use the phrase Latinx. And it goes to the New York Times it was, it's, it's, as if they changed the term for Jews to something that none of us Jews ever wanted or, or you know, 
and, and supposedly they did it out of respect for us. You know, it's kind of wacky. But here's another question. What if this hadn't happened with so much illegal immigration? What if it had happened um, out of need? Because it's always seemed to me that the people who need the illegal immigration, people who would be most pinched if all the illegal immigrants in the country were to disappear are Republicans. They're the ones who need somebody to take care of their landscaping, follow their kids, uh, work in their businesses. I mean, who, I mean, Democrats, I, if I my, put on my cynical hat, they see, vo- they see voters in immigrants and it also jibes with their kind of uh, tolerant worldview. But if, 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 if we had not been so porous, you would see the right calling upon the government to allow in more immigrants because we dreadfully need the labor. I mean, we terribly need the labor, right? But because it all poured in illegally, it allowed people to have their cake and eat it too. They can use the labor and still complain about it, which is what they do. They were never had to be on record demanding it because they needed it, right? Am I missing something there? Well, no, I think you're, you're right that a, a coalition, a part of the Republican Party, which is particularly agriculturalists, um, you know, people who own large large farms in the Southwest and, and very rich people did want exactly what you talked about. But I think now the base of conservative parties like the Republicans has shifted and it's much more about that kind of populist middle class, working class. Uh, and a lot of the kind of wealthier uh, voters have moved into the Democrat, not a lot, but many of them have gone into the Democratic parties, particularly the last two elections. You see white wealthy voters shifting into the Democratic Party. So um, you're right, though, at one time, the parties, the party voters were very similar in their views on immigration for, for decades. And it's not really until the last, well, 2015, 2016, that you start to see a big gap opening up. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's Republicans, but I'd say it's elite country club, if you like, Republicans who benefited. Well, but it's, it's small businesses too. I mean, I think that here, I've, I've been trying to be understanding to the non-immigrant side, but I want to say this, we have very little perspective on how much we benefit from immigration in this country. I mean, as a business owner, I will tell you, I mean, you could literally bring tears to my eyes. The immigrant workers, the labor is so far above the quality of native born. I'm telling you, I mean, like the, the Mexican employees that I have, you can't even comprehend how, how good they are. And I, I mean, I guess to say somebody's good is the same as saying someone else could be bad. So I guess I'm supposed to pretend that, no, that, that's not the case at all, that they're exactly the same as everybody else. But I'm telling you, it's, it's not the case. They are unbelievable. And they are, and immigrants in general are truly the backbone of everything. We have an aging white population that is not going to do this work. I mean, when I was a kid, the cab drivers were white, the guys in the kitchen were white you know every, white people did all the jobs right that 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 doesn't exist anymore and like i said I, we have our cake and eat it too because we indulge our tribal you know get our tribal rocks off by complaining about all the illegal immigrants or, or legal immigrants but we really really we need a like um it's a wonderful life the movie we need it and it's a wonderful life moment where there are no longer any immigrants and all of a sudden we realize <laughs> holy shit i had no idea they were holding us all together all this time. And then you wake up and you and you have a different outlook. You know, I don't know how to do that, but really people don't get it. Yeah. Well, I, th- 
I mean, I think it's something similar here in Britain, you know, that it's a very similar story that, you know, immigrants work probably better for less money and, and therefore- but, No, stop, forget about the less money. For the same money. Or the same money. For the but, same money. For more money, they're still cheaper. I, I'm telling you, an immigrant <laughs> making an immigrant making twice the wage is still cheaper than most non-immigrant workers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's probably right, but, <laughs> but um, it's not a bit, but the thing in this conversation is that, you know, there are economic benefits. I think that's absolutely right. I, I think it's a mistake to see this as an economic is- issue primarily. And, and if a lot of the academic research would suggest that when it comes to attitudes to immigration, it's mainly about these cultural psychological things and has very little to do with whether you are rich or poor or unemployed, uh, your views on immigration. Um, so yeah, I think, prob- but, but I suppose what the restrictionists might say is let's give it a try with lower numbers and see how it goes. And if we don't like it, we can go back to higher numbers. That To have that conversation is difficult when there are restrictions on what you can debate, what you can talk about, which policies you can cam- politically campaign on. This is one of the reasons it might let, it might be a good idea to have a period of lower numbers for a while, and then people might realize, actually, we've, we've thought about it, and maybe the trade-off, it's worth having more immigration, even if we have faster cultural change, which I might not like. I'm willing to make that trade. The other problem, of course, is that the people who benefit from the immigration tend to be the better off, uh, and it tends to be people who are less well-off who don't see those benefits. And they see the benefits in terms of lower prices for goods that they would have to pay more for. They don't necessarily appreciate that, um, but it, it benefits accrue more to the well-off. And we should remind everybody, it was very short while ago that people like Bernie Sanders mm. were the loudest voices against immigration. He, he filibustered the immigration bill that George Bush wanted to pass. So, you know, they, they, they pretend that this has been always their attitude, but it's, it's not at all. They're very much blowing the wind with what's uh, expedient now. By the way, do you, do you get called a racist for this stuff? Well, there's always a group. I mean, it's only a small group on the sort of left that will tend to wheel that out uh, on many occasions. But I've been really pleasantly surprised, say. I mean, the center grounds, the mainstream newspapers in the U.S. and Britain have generally been pretty favorable because they can see that, you know, the argument is one about slowing things down, having assimilation, um, and yeah, I mean, clearly they can see that the populists, you know, the populist right was surging from about 2014 through to about just when the COVID uh, pandemic hit. And I think after COVID, it's going to be right back with us. And so I think there's an, an awareness that there has to be an explanation for why this is happening. We have to come to grips with it somehow. So I think they were willing to listen uh, to some extent. But yeah, I mean, we know, of course, with political correctness and with wokeness, there's always that temp- that group of people who are out there trying to paint everything as racist and, and end the debate and shut it down. Um, so so Lingo is not the only one to call you racist. Not yet. Dan, you wanted a question. Dan, you had a question. Well, you, you sort of alluded to it. My, my question was, is, 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 is just to calm people down not reason enough to, to, to lessen immigration? And this goes back to my previous statement. If if a, if a large portion of our country feels that strongly about lessening immigration, whether they're right or wrong about it, you know, is, is it not valid to compromise with them just to calm things down? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, this is sort of my point is that to find an accommodation, like with economics, some people want 
more tax and spend, someone less tax and spend, people kind of accept that you kind of have a middle ground and they don't go ballistic when, when taxes aren't reduced or when they are increased. But, but Eric, yeah, I, was, I got to and Dan's going to roll his eyes, we always talk about, but really the left has to clean up its act here too. So for instance, uh, you can't, you can't go blah, blah, blah about uh, how dare you not want to take in um, non-white. Uh, how can you complain about uh, taking in non-white people from overseas? But as soon as they get here, when they apply to Harvard, we're going to make sure there's not too many Asians at Harvard. So this is, this is the ultimate contradiction, in my opinion, to take them in. I don't care where they're from. But then once they get here, we have to treat them as, as people, period. With, at the, at, I don't see how we can be a successful multi-ethnic nation if we are going to bean count how many Asians we have at our <laughs> universities. I just, I don't see that. If Harvard becomes 80% Indian and uh, Asian, South, South Asian and East Asian, I think we have to be prepared to say, we're very proud of our country now because actually we believe what we've been saying all this time. We don't care where they're from. God bless, God bless us that Harvard is 80% people of Asian. But if we're gonna say, no, we have to keep it at 20%, then how, who are we kidding? We don't wanna be a nation of immigrants. We don't, we just wanna sound like we are. And then we wanna do everything we can to prevent the successful immigrant populations from doing too well, right? That's not, that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, I mean, it's this, the ideology really of essentially sacralizing minority groups and demonizing the majority and that tendency of sort of a very negative outlook to majorities and very positive to minorities then colors all of these debates, right? It colors, you know, you, you want to enforce the border? Oh, it must be white people disliking non-white people. You want to have admissions? It's got to be equity, right? Because we want to have a racial mix that, you know. so, so I think the problem, yeah, this ideology of, of essentially sacralizing uh, minority groups and essentially demonizing the majority, that's where we've got to. And, and this thing started a hundred years ago, and I talk about this in the book, you know, really back then it was uh, demonizing, you know, wasps de demonizing themselves, right? saying that, oh, you guys are, are so boring, you don't like, you, you don't like dancing, you, you want to ban alcohol. You know, that was the beginning of it. And it's slowly developed and become more and more the sensibility of, of the elite. And yeah, we have, I think there has to be some reckoning with the excess of this left modernist ideology. We have to be able to dial it back or we're only going to be fueling uh, yeah. the kind of culture war polarization that we've got now. Yeah, because I'm actually quite an idealist. I would, I, you know, I, I would like to be I like a diverse America. Most of my, I mean, I, I got tremendous pleasure as a musician at times and as a, as a, uh, as a, a dude who was trying to date women and, and, you know, just, I can imagine like the first time I went to uh, uh, various cultures, learning from various cultures, musically, ethnic, uh, uh, cuisine wise, just experiencing it. I think these are all, I think it's all, it's all wonderful for America. I'm going to admit um, here, I'm probably the only one who doesn't know what sacralized means. Okay. <laughs> Make it tell what it means. I imagine it, you know what it means. You can I don't. Your context. Make it sacred. Yeah. Yeah. yeah make it sacred. Okay. So, so I'd never heard the word, but I guess yeah. uh, you know from the context. And I want, and I, and then this is my last question. And I know, I know, Eric's got to go, but maybe you know, you everybody get one last crack at him. Yeah. Where does where what is the typical African American view on immigration here? Because one often associates the the, the uh, people struggling 
to be more more likely to be resentful of someone else coming in, low skill yeah. particularly. Well, I mean, I I would say that they are. Um, you know, they're not as restrictionist as, as whites are, but there's still a significant, you know, I think it might be 30% or 40% wanting lower numbers. Uh, what's interesting is that if you look at, you know, of course, Trump got a, a higher share of Latino and black voters and, and Asian voters than uh, for the last couple of elections. And it's very interesting to see that the views of those groups on immigration are very similar to white Trump voters um, and their views on political correctness are very similar. And so I think we've actually got a kind of, multiracial coalition on a number of these issues, which is quite interesting. And I think that speaks also to this assimilation process. That's a, it is actually occurring, um, the assimilation process, and part of this increase in Latino and Asian support for the Republicans is reflecting that process. So that the, the cauldron is bubbling. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. If, if, it was, if it was an entirely white planet, <laughs> right. at, at a time when low-skilled jobs are leaving the country at a time when the, the ability to earn a decent middle-class family-supporting living on the, on the strength of your own back is disappearing. It's perfectly natural then that the country, big pockets of the country would be resistant to millions of competitive low-skilled workers coming in for a dwindling supply of jobs. And that is part of what we're seeing here. As, as low skilled labor, low skilled opportunities have evaporated, at, that's at the very time when low skilled workers are pouring in. And when the elite economists, including the Krugmans out there, can't tell you whether low skilled immigration is good for people, bad for people, creates jobs, loses jobs, they don't know. No. If the Nobel Prize winners don't know, then of course the average working Joe says, I don't want these fucking immigrants in here. I'm already struggling to hold on to this job at the at the plant, and I don't know if the plant's going to even be here a year from now. So, you know, it's not all race, right? No, no, it isn't. But, but most of the, I mean, actually most of what drives immigration opinion is these kind of cultural and psychological dispositions, regardless of whether you are unemployed or working class. Class doesn't explain much. Uh, but I don't want to call it, it's not racism. It is, and this is the point, it's about attachment to rather than hatred and fear of much more. It's much more that attachment to the country you knew growing up. And I'm, I just think it's a misnomer to call out racism. It is this form of cultural attachment, perhaps parochialism, but I do think we're, the left is going to have to develop more of a tolerance for that kind of person, that that is a valid way to be. And by the way, I just want to say, there is a, a, a well-known sociologist who has a phrase, There's no, there are no cosmopolitans without locals. So the countries you like to visit, the, the authentic cultures you like to, to see in other countries are only there because somebody has invested in them and wants to preserve them in a way. And so it's kind of inconsistent to sort of say, ethnicity is great, keeping your traditions is great if you are exotic and a minority, but keeping your traditions is awful if you are white and a majority. I mean, it's just not a consistent. Yeah, ask position. the French. Ask the French. They'll, get, they'll, they'll tell you. Yeah. Alingan, uh, what, I, listen, I, I'm always, in, first of all, he went to Harvard, uh, Alingan. He's a Santa comedian, but he went to Harvard, so he's quite bright. Right, but I failed. And, he, and he's, he didn't fail. And, um, and I and I never quite know where he is on these things, but but before Eric leaves, I want this, I'm going to turn it over to you to, to get everything else that you're thinking about finished, and then we're going to let uh, Eric go if he wants to go. Go ahead, Olingon. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, no, I've, I've got two, I guess I have two questions. One is I think that you have a very nuanced take on it and this idea of like, okay, it's, it's just, it's not, we don't like those people. We just like this thing. We want to continue having this thing. And it's not about us hating these other things, but I don't, I don't know if this is true for the majority of the country, the majority of the Trump people who are coming out to those rallies and cheering when he's saying like the China flu, right? Like, or, or whatever kind of dog whistling he was doing at that point. Now, maybe they're not representative of the country, but we are seeing that. And that's something I wonder about. And the other thing I wonder about is when we say slow it down in actual terms, what does that mean? Like, Right now, maybe we're more open than we were before. And there was a time when you couldn't marry a black person or you couldn't go to school with people who weren't uh, also, you know, black. Would we have at that point said, oh, slow it down because white people are uncomfortable with black people coming onto the bus the way they are now, you know? Like, at what point are we like, okay, we're bowing too much to these Excellent people. question. And uh, the, the people did say slow it down then. What's your, what's your answer? Okay, well, yeah, just on the, on the Trump, you know, the people in the rallies are obviously true believers. And uh, yeah, I think you're probably right that some of them would have these negative outlooks. But certainly in the survey data, that if you look at white Trump voters, their warmth towards Latinos, African-Americans, they're reasonably warm, actually. It's not, they're not particularly cool. And do White you think Trump those voters, surveys are accurate? Because we yeah yeah these are these are this is like the gold standard. I mean the American National Election Study. I mean you can look at a lot of the social scientific surveys, but the one I'm talking about is the ANES, the main U.S. politics survey. It measures warmth towards outgroup, and that's really not correlated towards you know if you, white Trump voters who are attached to being white are not anti-black or anti-Hispanic more than whites who were not attached to being white. So I actually think that is people have less to fear than they imagine, that, that the average white Trump voter is not that anti-minority. The other thing, in terms of the uh, looking ahead, you know, it's worth looking back on the U.S. historical experience when Jews and Italians and others, I mean, it really took the Southern and Eastern Europeans, you know, three, four generations for the ethnic neighborhoods to, to break up, the intermarriage between Catholic, Protestant, and Jew to happen. It took 70, 80 years, and I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we don't think it's going to take 70 or 80 years for the current waves to be similarly assimilated, and therefore, but it took an immigration pause for that to occur. Uh, can, and so can, part can I, of the argument is to, that we may need a slower period in order for this melting to occur. Eric, can I take a stab at Alingan's question? Sure. Uh, so the slow it down is very interesting because, for instance, we we made a, a deal with the devil of slavery uh, under the argument of slow it down. And, um, you know, we, we, we decided to, we'd had enough of this, or, or much of the country decided had enough of this when this, in, during the civil rights movement. And many people were then were, were arguing slow it down. But the strife, which was real, which we had to endure as a nation, we decided at that point, uh, morally, it, it didn't matter because the, the price to pay in not doing it was too high. So slow it down um, is, shouldn't be uh, considered ridiculous because, yes, you, there are real difficulties and costs to not slowing things down. However, there's, you have to look at the other side of the moral equation. What's different here is that we don't have any particular obligation here 
to allow X number of people to come into the country. We're not, we're, we don't have the other side of, well, we have no right to let black people sit on the back of the bus, use different water fountains and go to different schools. We can say, slow it down and say, we haven't done anything to anybody. Nobody, you know, we, we don't, we're not obligated to just open up the United States of America. So I think that the slow it down, I think your question is excellent. And I think that maybe I'm, maybe I'm just finding a clever way around it, but I think that the, the other side of that equation is different here because we are not actively engaged in an absolutely immoral practice, which we're looking for an excuse to perpetuate by saying, slow it down. We're just saying, let's just go back to levels that we had 20 years ago of immigration, you know, and if that works out, we can pick up the pace again. That would be my answer. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point you make about, because there's a question of discrimination is discrimination always not permissible. And of course, in fact, we recognize that people are allowed to form associations that they want to form. So they can move to areas they want to move into. They can make friends with whoever they want to make friends with, join clubs they want to join. And this is part of what nations are. Um, they can decide who to admit, how fast to change. The relationship with the rest of the world is more like the relationship of a club or association to the rest of society. People are allowed to discriminate, make choices. The difference with civil rights is you, you're not allowed to discriminate if somebody, you know, you can't let a black person buy something from your bakery. That's not allowed because you're offering a public service and you're not treating people equally within your own society. It's a very different thing from whether you allow in more or fewer uh, immigrants vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, which is an associational problem and not uh, the same issue of discrimination as black sitting in the back of the bus. So, so they're problems of a different category and they shouldn't be collapsed into the same logic. Yeah. I know it's not necessarily the subtlest point, but it's, it's, <laughs> no. All right. Um, so I, I guess we're, we're at an hour. You, you only agreed to stay with us for half an hour. I, I hope the reason you stayed was because you thought the conversation was not stupid. Uh, <laughs> uh, and um, I guess that's it, right? Periel, we're at an hour. We are oh, we at an hour. Yeah, we did want to talk a bit about, uh, first of all, we haven't spoken to